0: I <laughs> do Hey guys, what's up? It is week uh, 120, and uh, first and foremost I want to start this out with letting you guys know about a couple Indiegogos going on. Uh, First is Beyond Horror, the history and uh, subculture of red films. This is, Indiegogo's going right now, link will be below, and the trailer. This is kind of a documentary look at, you know, kind of extreme films, who makes them, who watches them, all that kind of stuff. It's actually made by Jesse Seitz and Marcus Cook, who's a special effects artist. I know Marcus uh, worked with him a couple times, really nice guy. actually was interviewed for this uh, and I, a little at Wasteland. So there's like in the, you know, kind of like teaser trailer, I'm in, I don't know if I'll make the final cut, but I'm definitely donating and I'm interested in this subject matter. It's got a bunch of cool people involved with it. So yeah, that information will be below. And also I want to share, uh, Sam Vanessi's, um, Indiegogo for his completed film, Violet, or he's working on it. it's post-production, uh, for his movie. He directed a bunch of shorts. I know Sam, really good guy, worked on the Batman, uh, his feature, uh, film debut as Violet. And he got a bunch of cool people involved with the project, so check that Indiegogo out as well. But now I guess we're going to hop into the uh, reviews. First, I wanted to uh, do Todd Sheets Clownado. Yes, yes, Clownado. The title on that movie, let alone, it's just not something I would typically go for. That's never been my style of movie, to be honest, like uh, Shark Dado or anything like that. But I'm, I'm a Todd Sheets fan. I've watched uh, you know, some of his older stuff like Zombie Bloodbath and some of his newer films in his comeback, like um, House of Forbidden Secrets and Bone Hill Road. So, and, you know, Todd Sheets is one of these indie guys who has been doing it forever, known for Splatter, and he has a nice little cult status. First and foremost... Todd Sheets, I met him once. One of the nicest guys I ever met. Um, you know, but here his movies are low budget for sure. And he's come a long way, let's be honest. He used to shoot on SOV and he's come a long way. Um, Clownado, like I said, the title... Immediately for somebody like me was like I don't know man this doesn't sound like it's something that uh, Todd Sheets would typically make um, the whole you know Sharknado kind of cash in title with clowns it just feels like a cash in but it's a lot more like a Todd Sheets movie than one would expect to be honest the plot is ridiculous of course it's called Clownado so it is kind of what you expect um, but. I do like how they did it because I think that's the most reasonable way to create a clownado I guess is the way they did it this one this movie opens up and it feels like it's in a film noir world which kind of threw me off I was like oh so is this a period piece uh, but then later on you realize it's not it's just that these kind of characters in this traveling circus have that kind of dichotomy with each other so we have a cheating girlfriend or cheating wife I'm not 100% sure she's cheating on her husband Big Ronnie who is this uh, this crazy clown kind of guy he catches them and he decides to to you know, kill the boyfriend and the girlfriend in a fit of rage goes to Janine Silver, you know, adult actress, and puts a curse on him. This curse, you know, ends up sucking him and his clown cronies into this clownado. But it backfires. Something went wrong with the curse. I don't know what. You don't know what. It's kind of weird. It's it's you know, it's occult stuff. So don't worry about it. And what happens is they get sucked into this uh, you know tornado and they can pop up wherever and they have supernatural powers. They're after her. But meanwhile, there's a bunch of other the characters, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I guess he did ragtag kind of group of people that ended up forming a relationship around the road together. There's a girl who ran away from home. There's kind of, a, uh, I guess, this good-natured kind of southern guy. There's a Elvis impersonator, and they all kind of meet up in a stripper who just got fired from her job. So, yeah, it's like the weird village people or something like that. Um, ragtag is a good word for him. So they end up, uh, bumping into this woman who's running from the clownado and all hell breaks loose. Uh, pretty much the clownado pops up here and there and kills whoever's there. It has a lot of, you know, Todd sheets, familiars, people from his older films, but it's also got, you know, some, uh, genre, you know, favorites that people will enjoy seeing like Linnea Quigley and Aline Dietz from the Exorcist. So that's always nice for people like that. They do incorporate some nudity. So I know people will be pleased with that. Uh, you know, a lot of the bigger uh, stars in here, you know, they're kind of reduced to little cameo things. Sometimes, you know, in a lot of these movies, it, sometimes it's nice to see them. Sometimes it's obviously a cash-in. I enjoyed their cameos in this one. I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, the gore's here. It's not as strong as a lot of Todd Sheets movies, but there is some, uh, I guess I'll say, inventive gore. Usually it's a lot of gut-ripping, and there's that in here. But there's some cool special effects involving one of the characters' breasts turn into teeth and attack somebody. I like that kind of stupid stuff. I've always enjoyed that. Um, and and like they have a little different group of clown killers, which I also kind of dig. A couple are actually uh, some Florida actors and actresses that I've actresses that I've seen in you know some of the Gator Blade films and stuff like that. The sleazy sleaze box pictures. They um I can't think of her name. Uh, Cat um Phoenix. I, but she pops up in a bunch of those. And uh, uh, there's another guy who's in those too. So as one of the clowns, so it's nice to see them kind of cross over here. This movie, it's not perfect. There is some, you know, like exposition, and the dialogue is strange with the, the characters from the film noir stuff. I thought that they probably delivered the lines the best. The acting in the low-budget movies is ranges completely, and everybody knows that, but Todd chooses uses a lot of non-actors at times, and you can spot their performances, but it, it does seem to have some sort of energy with their performances. Like, you could tell they're enjoying themselves, even though their performances aren't great, and uh, sometimes I really like that. Um, other times, it doesn't work so well, but I enjoyed The Waitress in here. Everybody keeps calling Flo when her name is Alice. That's a good gag. I, You know, you can tell she's not like a professional actress or anything, but I thought she had a good time. And like I said, there is some nar- gnarly gore in here and uh, it doesn't really let up. It just goes, it's very, it gets repetitive though, because as they run, the clownator shows up and there's some like corny things where they need to, you know, move the story along and add new characters. So instead of, you know, like an uh, easy way is their car doesn't start, so they jump in with some other characters and stuff like that. It is low budget filmmaking. It does have, you know, a little slappy points in the script, but... Um, for a movie called Clownado, I was glad it was a supernatural and not a scientific reason for this. Um, and the end of this movie is really what I like the best, because uh, no other than one of my favorite indie actors comes into the picture, Joel D. Weinkoop. Yes, Joel D. Weinkoop started off with Tim Ritter movies, he's in a bunch of stuff, tons of Florida movies. Um, he's in this movie, and he by far gives a great performance, the best performance in the movie if you ask me, and he usually does give the best performance in any of these movies. The guys in the commentary were saying the same thing, and I was so happy to hear them say that, because I'm a big uh, Joel D. Weincoop fan, and no matter what I feel about the movie, he always delivers the goods. And this one, it was a little bit. I, he's always really over the top, but somehow it works with him. He was a little bit more subtle in this one, and like I could buy this guy just being in another movie. And usually with a, you know Joel D., he gives you a million percent, but this one I felt he was even for. I mean, he's still over the top. You know, most people are like that's crazy, but he still felt a little bit more subdued, and I, I thought it was perfect. He's got great dialogue; he delivers it really well. There's some you know really kind of uh, bad CGI. Or I don't even know if it's CGI effect. Not practical effects are fine, you know, they're gory, they're gooey, there's a lot of spray, even though some of the blood is a little is a little water kinda like, because especially when it fountains out, you know, Japanese style, it's kind of expected. But I think some of the CGI with like the tornadoes and the plane and stuff, it is you know a little cheap. Of course, it is a low budget movie. Um, all in all, it is it's, it runs a little long. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. Um, I'm glad I watched it. And uh, I always like to uh, kind of check out Todd Sheets' movies. Um, I would recommend checking out House of Forbidden Secrets uh, for sure. I think that one's uh, more ambitious and uh, big, and I, I really dig that one. This one I think's okay. You know, uh, somewhere along like kind of Bone Hill Road uh, style and, and that level, uh, somewhere like mid. Tier tear for me you know and uh you got to remember these guys are working on a budget so you got to cut them some extra slack i know some people be like eh, nobody's gonna cut them slack but i do because i know what it's like to kind of make independent movies so i know sometimes that with something this ambitious he always has a big cast and stuff and a lot of characters and a lot of locations so you know that that gives a little credit for that and you know i do like the idea there's a couple ridiculous scenes in here and there's obvious shout outs to a bunch of different movies and stuff like the ridiculous scene where the the little uh clown comes out of the bigger clown after it's died i'm like that's a demons reference for sure stuff like that you know Todd Sheets through and through is a big horror fan and a uh, positive attitude in the independent horror community so yeah that is Clownado there was a commentary on here and a making of so that's kind of cool the commentary doesn't include Todd Sheets it's more of just kind of you know two big fans of Todd Sheets uh, kind of reviewers probably kind of like myself that just talk about the movie and stuff so if that's your thing then check it out <laughs>
1: Based on indicated rotation, on impact, flying debris will be dangerous
2: to those caught without shelter, mobile homes will be damaged or destroyed, damage to windows and vehicles will occur, this dangerous storm will be near, take cover now, move to a basement or an interior room on the lowest floor of a sturdy building.
1: business to figure out.
0: Okay, guys, the next one is from Scream Team Releasing, and this is Close Calls by Richard Stringham. Um, You know, I wanted to check this one out. It looked interesting. It had, like, you know, a a great look to it. Okay, let me start on this one. Richard Stringham is an independent director. This is his first feature film, and listening to the commentary and the making of and stuff, you learn a lot about the making of this movie. And first and foremost, before I even talk about the movie, I want to give hats off to this filmmaker for putting so much out there and putting so much effort into an independent movie because there's a lot of independent movies out there and not everybody puts forth the effort that someone like this director does in this crew. Okay, close calls. Uh, first, again, it runs two hours and eight minutes and, you know, even in the commentary, he said people are going to complain about the run time, so here it is. And and he said they, what, they can go screw themselves, it's a slow-paced movie, and I don't have problems with a slow-paced movie, but this movie seems to have a lot of uh, stuff that I don't particularly, you know, it just feels not necessarily unneeded, just um, a little, uh, maybe sometimes repetitive and a lot of it seems to be exposition or it's a movie that like it it picks its shots perfectly because it wants to build tension in them and sometimes it works and sometimes i could go without some of it that's all i'm going to say there i think that the lead actress in the movie jordan phipps i believe somebody actually said she was a good actress when I asked underrated actresses and stuff like that, so it's nice to see her in a movie, finally, and she's actually really pretty pretty good in it. Um, She walks around in her underwear pretty much the whole movie. I was like, okay, this is definitely a shout-out to old, you know, obvious old 80s kind of movies, but she's pretty solid in it, and I thought the grandmother was solid in it in the movie, and that's where I'm going to leave it. Um, And a movie like this, there's a lot of dialogue, tons and tons of dialogue, and so the performances in the movie are really, you know, there's a lot on their shoulders, and I thought those two handled it well. Um... Like I said, the plot of this movie is kind of crazy and it feels like a lot of the stuff like the kitchen sink approach where there's a lot of different things going on and a lot of uh, you know, crazy imagery. First and foremost, this is probably one of the best looking independent movies I've ever seen as far as set design and production design are concerned and the camera work. I was really impressed with that. Uh, the locations and everything was great. The lighting was great. The color correction was great. So many indie movies do not color correct their movies after they're done and you notice it. They all look very flat, very plain, very boring. This is not that. This is probably, if you take any still from this movie, which is funny because the cinematographer was uh, still uh, you know, a photographer, not a DP necessarily. He did still photography, I originally think, is what I heard uh, on the special features. And it, it, every picture, if you take a still from this movie, it could be a picture. It all looks beautiful. And, uh, yeah, there's lots of like things going on here. Like in the opening of this movie, I was like, Oh, this is so Euro based with the, uh, the, uh, fog and the colors and the, (laughs) the tarantula and the rats. I was like, this is definitely European inspired Italian whore kind of deal. And the director says that he had tons of inspirations and you can see all the inspirations. He wears them on his sleeve and they're in the film, which I appreciate a lot of that. I really do. Um, like I said, there's so many things to enjoy about this movie, but for some reason, I couldn't connect to it. I felt that, you know, I, I don't mind the um, ambiguous tones to it, because like, you really never know exactly what's going on. We have the actress is receiving phone calls, but she's taking a lot of drugs, and she has some family issues, and there's some trauma in the past. There's a sick grandmother, a dead mother, and you sort of think that like, maybe there's some hereditary kind of psychological damage to this family. Um, the father is a horrible, ca- horrible dad to me. I mean, maybe he's not supposed to come off as one, but he just seemed like a miserable piece of crap. Um, almost everybody in this, movie is a pretty bad to gray character there's not really any redeeming characters in the movie they're all kind of horrible the lead is the most likable and she's kind of like you know a snotty kind of drug using teen although you know all teens are probably you know snotty and you know most people probably experimented with drugs when they were younger so or uh, quite a few i'll say but you know there, there's that she's the most likable character in the movie a lot of the characters and performances are strange to me i feel like some of them are miscast i don't want to go into detail but i, I feel like there's some miscast moments and the, the whole scenes with the boyfriend i understand why they're there because they create turmoil with the father and they give a chance to, you know, some exposition more, more with the phone and even more, you know, into the insight of, you know, her relationship with him. Oh, lots of stuff. But I think that that whole subplot almost felt like a little useless to me, if that makes any sense. It leaves it open ended, you know, like even kind of like Danda of Black Christmas, which just had some inspiration from, leaves kind of an open ended, kind of strange feeling to it. This does the same thing. And I really like, um, some of that stuff at the end. I think that's really cool. I come, I come where somewhere in the middle because there's some things I really don't like about this movie, but there's some other things I think are the best thing I've seen in a long time, so it's really weird for me. Like, I said, I, um, I thought that some of the performances hurt the film for me because this movie relies a lot on dialogue and performances, and, like, I liked a couple and I disliked a couple, and those couple were pivotal to the film. Uh, the comedy, to me, I don't really find necessarily hilarious or anything like that, but that's all subjective, and you can't rate them mo- You know, some people will find it so I'm not going to say anything about that really Um, there's some really gross stuff in here too that kind of made me gag with the grandmother and she, she goes for it I'll tell you that But the house they chose is beautiful. There's actually a couple houses in here. Like I said, this thing looks so damn good. Like every scene in here looks amazing. And I really would love the director to do another movie. Uh, I'm really interested in checking out what he has up his sleeve. He wants to do another one. And he comes from like a a working background, like a sheet metal worker. And I I respect the hell out of that guy working in a factory. I know how that kind of stuff can be. Uh, So... In, in one hand, I think this is definitely worth watching for sure, at least just to see how well you can make an independent movie look. And then on the other hand, like, I feel like some of the, uh, the performances really hurt it. And, um, not necessarily the script or the pacing. It's just some of the things I think could have been uh, some of the things could have been completely cut out. Some of the, some of the other side plots going on because there's so much going on in this movie and I know that's kind of the point and maybe I missed something. I'm, I'm obviously not above missing something. But like I said, um, this is like one of the movies I wanted to love more than anything and I just couldn't fall in love with it which kind of, it, it like hurts my soul when I watch an independent movie. I don't go into independent movies or movies in general like I hope I hate this because I hate that. What's the point of doing that? That's stupid. I really, um. And, but sometimes you you want to like something so much, and you don't, you're a little disappointed, and you can put that on yourself or whatever. But um, there's a making of that's it. like two hours and 30 minutes, really beefy. They go into the detail about the you know troubled production and things like that. And there's a commentary, a couple commentaries on here, so that's pretty cool. Um, I would recommend looking into this one and checking it out. Uh, visually, probably one of the best put together indie movies I've seen in a very long time. It's just that something for it was something was missing for me. So I don't know if that will be the case with you. I do believe this is on Amazon Prime, but you can get it at Stream Team releasing and all sorts of other places i think there's also a dvd that um, mvd is distributing so check that out Uh, there'll be a bunch of links below so yeah
1: for god's sake david what is it
2: just don't have a very good feeling right now about what about morgan seriously hating on the only way that we can ever be together so if we die together.
1: What are you trying to do to me?! Do.
2: Look at Just me! Just take it all out. <sighs>
0: Okay guys, the next one is a Scream Team releasing film as well, and this is Exposure. And this is supposed to be like a creature feature kind of flick, but it's a, it's a little bit different than that. I mean, uh, yeah, I was excited to check this one out. I love monsters. I love practical effects. So yeah, this movie pretty much is driven by two actors and actresses again, and that you put a lot of sh- a lot on the shoulders of two actors and actresses when the whole movie's driven by them. I think this is like an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 40 minute movie. So maybe, maybe it's a little shorter than that. Maybe it's an hour and 20, I, I was somewhere, somewhere around there, like hour, 20, hour, 40 minute movie. But I do feel like this one, you know, it did feel like it kind of went on a little longer and got a little repetitive for me as well. Maybe my attention span's just bad or something. I don't know. But we have two, uh, you know, a uh, 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 girlfriend, boyfriend that go to this cabin that used to belong to, it belongs to the boyfriend's family. Something tragic and weird happened in this place. But they obviously have a shaky relationship and they're trying to patch things up. So their, like, interactions are a little bit different, a little bit strange. Right when they get to the cabin, it feels like something's wrong. You know, you kind of get that feeling right away. And the one thing I noticed about this movie at the first, the strange things seem to be almost supernatural, but as it goes on later, it seems to be some sort of, you know, evolutionary uh, Lovecraftian horror story. And I don't understand how both of them are simultaneously happening, or if one's affecting the other, or there really is just one kind of thing engulfing it all. And that seems to be more likely, but I'm not sure necessarily how the supernatural and how the evolutionary horrors cross paths in some kind of way. It definitely becomes like a body horror kind of deal. But regardless, the the husband starts to lose his grip, and they start to notice weird things. And at one point, he leaves in the middle of the night in like a, a fogging, a hazing fog, and... But then later he's bit by something. I'm like, now I don't know where this is taking, if he's been affected before or when he's affected there. And that kind of threw me off, threw me for a loop where I was like, is there like dual things going on here and whatnot? But what I say is, this movie relies heavily on its location. It's, it takes place in like an isolated log or like a like kind of old cabin kind of deal thing. The cabin's beautiful. The location's beautiful. I liked a lot of the camera work. I seen somebody complaining on Letterboxd with the camera work, and I was like, I thought it looked good. I don't know. Maybe I'm blind, but I thought it looked pretty good. I thought they, uh, you know, it's a lovely location, and they use it pretty well. The trees and the cabin and everything like that. The framing's really nice and seems professional. Um, I, I thought the framing was very professional, where everything lays out, and they would do, like, split shots and stuff like that. I was like, I was very impressed with that kind of... I thought the female lead was solid. I didn't care for the male lead in, in particular, but I, I thought that he, he, he gives like an awkward performance, and that's could have been what they were looking for, but I didn't think it worked for me very well. Like I said, this is a movie that relies on two actors, really, because it's a lot of dialogue and stuff like that, and a lot of exposition spoken by them. And if that's all there really is to grasp onto it just kind of lost me at one point but there's a really kind of a spooky uh, story that the uh, boyfriend tells to the girlfriend uh, that where the movie got its title exposure involving the grandparents which I loved I thought was really cool and kind of scary and I thought that worked really well um, when the actual practical effects start to happen, I was happy with them. I thought they looked pretty good. I thought they were creepy and scary and uh, worked well. Uh, it had some deepness, mis- de- like I said, decent atmosphere along with the nice use of locations and things like that. But I, I couldn't love this one either. I, I felt like there was a, a maximum effort involved, kind of like close calls. I- not, as- not as much effort put into this as close calls. I mean, like I said, there were- you could tell there was so much put into that one. I thought there was a great deal amount, of- a great deal of effort. But again, it didn't 100% work for me either. Um, I thought it was, maybe we're checking out if it, if it interests you, but I do think that for the story, it probably would have worked best as a short. There's just not enough in here, um, or there isn't enough explored within, you know, the two kind of things going on. I would have liked to see a little bit more or a little bit less, if that makes any sense uh, for anybody. But that's exposure. There is a commentary on here, and there's kind of like a little like a makeup test, and I think I believe there's some other things on here as well. Yeah, there's, like I said, there's like three audio commentaries, I think, on this one, and there's a little look at behind the looks behind like kind of special effects and how long it took to put all the makeup on the guy but yeah like i said uh you know this is a group of people that were working together for years and they finally got to make a feature film together and uh hats off again to them uh you know it's it's a good looking movie and it's professional it's just that the story didn't catch me as much as i would have liked to and you know the acting uh, at least half of it was just a little iffy for me so yeah that's exposure you think?
1: <laughs> it's amazing. I know why you like to spend so much time here as a kid.
0: Some of the best memories of my life were made here.
1: I just, I don't think forcing anything is the best way to go.
2: No, I'm not trying to force anything, but
1: don't you agree we're worth fighting for?
3: Okay. You don't feel like everything's just a little off?
1: This place. Since we came here, just everything feels strange.
0: Okay, this next one, again, is a Scream team releasing, and this is a double feature here of Camp Killer and Maniac Farmer. Let's go into Camp Killer first. Okay, this was made in 2016, which kind of immediately, this is kind of like a throwback to the slasher movies. And I want to kind of point out, I don't think you can make an old school slasher movie anymore without being self-aware, because I feel like every slasher movie I see wants to turn a genre on its head instead of just make a straightforward slasher movie now. Ever since Scream, it's been like that. We've had stuff like You Might Be the Killer, which this one is actually made before You Might Be the Killer, because it does share some similarities and things like Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, and even stuff like Sledge, I mean, I feel like is self-aware. I feel like almost all of them are self-aware. Um, so it's really hard for me to, you know, I almost want to just watch old slasher movies because I'm I'm getting like, it, it's like, Everybody wants to be so clever with a slasher movie, it's becoming the, re- the norm for a slasher movie to try to be clever and turn the genre on its head instead of just being straightforward. It's, we've had so much of that that we don't even really remember what the hell they're doing with it anymore. Or at least the new audience won't. This is definitely a movie made for you know fans of old slasher films. Okay, so Camp Killer the opening of this movie is like 20, 30 minutes and I was like where are we going here because they open all the characters they tell this backstory this is kind of fun about this crazy killer who killed a bunch of people out in these woods and everybody keeps forgetting but they keep coming back and uh, then everybody's pretty much slaughtered except one survivor so I was like where are we going with this and I kind of like the idea that I didn't know exactly where we were going with this so that was nice and I thought the best performance in a whole movie was right there besides probably the killer was of this heavy guy who was kind of the nerdy one that told everybody all the things about it and he's like we're gonna die out here he was really fun to watch i thought he was entertaining but after that there's some you know some gore gags and stuff like that pretty typical of these movies and i was like where's this gonna go after that the whole movie turns into you know exposition and talking and arguing and kind of humor a humorous movie and you realize exactly what is going on in this whole town and this whole town is part of it i don't necessarily want to spoil everything about it but it is a self-aware thing that pokes fun at other slasher films and fans of huge slasher movies like Friday Thirteen 13th series will really get a kick out of some of the things they're talking about and the killer talking about his methods and, and arguing with the person, uh, with the sheriff. So we have that kind of going on. Like I said, I don't want to spoil too much, but without... Even spoiling that, I can't really talk about the plot or anything about the movie past the first twenty minutes. So, if you really don't want to know anything about it and go in blind, skip ahead until the maniac, to the maniac farm review. There'll be a timestamp below. So, essentially, this movie kind of wants to turn the genre on its head and have the killer uh, and the sheriff who are brothers uh, be in some weird kind of devil pack where they had uh, made a pack that killed six hundred and sixty six people, and then they'll get their he'll, they'll get their souls free. But they have to like break this curse and the whole town is kind of in on it in some sort of aspects in a lot of ways, not the whole town, but part of the town and everybody kind of forgets Steve, similar to like Stephen King. Once you leave dairy, it, you know, you kind of, kind of forget it's kind of had that thing going for it. And it, it, definitely pokes fun at the genre here and there. And I was watching the special features on this and I was like, but this whole movie was exposition and talking. And there was really not much action in the whole movie. There's like 20 minutes in the beginning, 10 minutes at the end and no anything else in the middle. And that the filmmaker was like, he wanted to make something like dinner with Andre, which is funny because the director of close calls mentions dinner with Andre too. Like this is big inspiration. Cause there's a lot of talking or people just hanging out in one area and talking. So, you know, but again, when you have that in a movie, like, um, uh, In a low-budget movie, it's really hard to have those performances that you need, like a Reservoir Dogs trapped in that one isolated area, bouncing back and forth. They have, like, Harvey Keitel and, like, Steve Buscemi doing that when you have, like, somebody that's just an indie actor. And like I said, The Killer, I think, does pretty well. The Sheriff's okay. I mean, the acting is okay in this, for the most part. Artie Lehman's in here, so that's kind of nice to see him, I guess, if you like Jason, uh, Friday 13th, Part 1. And he's okay in it. So if you like that, they pretty much do a lot of the dialogue in here. But then you realize that, you know, this uh, survivor, the survivor girl, starts to learn what's happening in the town. And there's another survivor girl who's kind of crazy. She talks in the third person, like "Venom" or like "Yeah, like we," you know, or something like that. Like not, not necessarily third person, but you know, what I mean, like "we, we." That's kind of strange thing. Like she's all the final girls psychologically in her head, and that's kind of that's kind of clever as well. But they decide to take vengeance, and there's some twist at the end. And uh, you know, it, it kind of goes. Uh, you know, I don't know if you'd guess where it goes, but there's some decent moments some okay gourd splatter effects but it's um one of these things where i've seen so many times they turn the genre on its head that i'm almost past that at this point and this was made in 2016 so it's it, it was made a little bit before a lot of this stuff was becoming uh overdone even though it was Im- immediately started after scream this one i feel like probably if it would have came out right when it came out it would be uh i'd fare it a little bit better you know but after watching even you might be the killer which came out a couple years later i think that it, it suffers a little bit from that like i said it, it's An indie movie. It doesn't look particularly bad at all. I don't really have any um, hits on the filmmaking of it. It's just that, you know, the script. And it's just like you need A-listers to carry this dialogue because it's very dialogue heavy. And and it's a lot of uh, self-referencing or stuff like slasher movies. And I've seen that a lot. And a lot of people may enjoy that. But at, at a certain time, like I, you know, it doesn't always work for me. And I get bored with that kind of stuff at this point because I've seen it so many times. So maybe no real fault of the movie. Maybe just the fault of, you know, um, me seeing so many of these damn things in the last 10 years and whatnot. And it's just, it, it has some clever moments at one point, but at other times I just don't really uh, connect with it or find all of it that funny because uh, just a reference to a movie that I like or enjoy won't always get a, a laugh or a chuckle out of me. I'm the type of guy that sometimes doesn't even like hearing, you know, like Romero or Carpenter's name in Night of the Creeps, which I love Night of the Creeps. You're like, okay, Carpenter King. I get it. I get it. And, and and Todd Sheets does that too. Lots of those guys do that. And I probably even made a movie I'd do it. So it's like I'm making stuff that it comes natural to, it comes natural to horror fans that do that kind of thing things but at the same time somebody that's watched so many horror movies will get bothered by it you know i wonder if a lot of these indie guys watch other independent movies sometimes and see that stuff or they don't watch the independent movies they just watch kind of the mainstream movies they loved i'm not sure but um it's again humor it's very subjective and my friends call me the humor police the for a reason because i don't find a lot of things funny but that is a camp killer
1: Don't say you haven't been warned. You're doomed if you go out in those woods. Doom. No!
3: Why isn't he dying?
2: Oh, don't you worry, Dolly.
0: Okay, the next one on this double feature is Maniac Farmer. Okay, this one... Uh This one I didn't care for so much at all. The other ones, you know, I I felt there were some cool things and unique things about them. But Maniac Farmer, I felt was, in a way, it was kind of two storylines and they're going to collide. And that's almost three storylines kind of in here. We have this, you know, kind of classic uh, slaughterhouse buddy pig farmer kind of character. Um, I guess even maybe a Leatherface character who lives on this farm. He's isolated. He has mommy issues. Think Ed Gein, um, you know, think Norman Bates kind of deal. And he kills and hacks and slash people. He doesn't have really any character, doesn't have any dialogue. And then we also have these police who are on to this gang, which is the third storyline. The police is the second storyline. I guess I should have said the gang first. But they're after these kind of punks that are going around. And they also know about, they're kind of intertwined. One of the guys knows about this kind of weird farmer kind of deal in his past. And then we have the punks. And this is a gang. They're like the type of young, like, uh, thrill kind of killers, thrill seekers out there. And the leader of this gang speaks in a really poor Australian accent, but obviously it's a put on, which is kind of nice to see. That's kind of funny. But um, again, this is an independent movie, and uh, it's one of these ones where nobody is quite the right age they should be. Everybody's either. Too young to be cops, or too old to be the teens that they're portraying. So it's always like everybody in here just doesn't look right. Like kind of like you know a kid wearing too big of a coat or something like that. I just felt that everybody didn't look a hundred percent right for the roles. But we have all these kind of storylines going on, and I will give the movie credit for setting up a, a part in here that plays into the end. Uh, I don't want to spoil the ending, of course, but it plays into the end where one of the characters uh, gives one of the cops gives a speech up to the other cop, and then it plays directly into the end of this movie. And I. Thought that that was really well done, and I thought it actually bumped it up quite a bit, a little bit, you know, at least a little bit. It gave him a little bit of a bump, but for that we had like the gang. Um, stuff going on, and you don't really care about any of the characters. I thought the acting was lousy, actually, uh, for the most part. None of the actors or anything really connected to me, and I didn't buy any of their performances in this one. I like that it's a double feature because you get two different kind of uh, you know slashers. One, this one is kind of little. It doesn't turn it on its head a hundred percent, but the other one does. So it's more of a straightforward kind of exploitation kind of deal. Uh, I, I, the killer doesn't really have any charisma. Like I know it's, it's so stupid thing to say, right? Like pig farmer needs charisma to kill people. But for some reasons, people like Leatherface obviously are very intriguing to watch or even buddy to a certain extent in slaughterhouse. But uh, I just felt that, uh, it was very bland and he, it's probably possibly he didn't get enough screen time or any character development to be there, except that he's this one dimensional character and you know, who he is. And most of them are one dimensional characters. Like I said, besides that one scene where it explains what's going to happen at the ending and the ending, I felt that there was nothing very impactful about it. Um, the bad guy, the gang is very annoying and a lot of people will be happy to just to watch them die. And that's kind of like the point of them. Definitely. just, just watch them be slaughtered and killed. And the kill counts, not as high as I would have liked to be honest in something like this. Cause there's a lot of gang members that I was hoping they would throw in just to be slashed and hacked, but it becomes, you know, very talky as well. A lot of, uh, you know, talking and driving to one location or the other police procedural and the cops aren't very interesting and they look way too young for their roles. Um, For me at least. Maybe it's just I'm so used to watching a lot of classic movies and things like that. And, you know, like I I must admit, this week I did watch the hustler, Paul Newman, George C. Scott, so it's like Everybody's acting is going to be lackluster compared to that, and I don't want to. Maybe I'm just being unfair this whole week, and I feel like I might be. I don't know. But there's a scene in here which probably I can't not not mention. Um, there's a like a rear projection or possible green screen driving, and the cops are in the front seat, and then there's a character in the back seat, and I feel like they put a rear projection on that where he's not actually there, and then behind there's some like you know car moving and stuff like that. So like I feel like there's a green screen within a green screen and super or like whatever superimposed two times over or something like that. And I was just like, oh, that looks rough. It looks rough. Even for an indie movie but there's that there's like a commentary on here Um, I feel like a piece of shit for reviewing these is not like as as, you know like praising them but I have to be honest it's just uh, this one didn't do much for me I I definitely did not like it at all but um, that's Maniac Farmer Uh, it is a double feature on there I think Camp Killer is more worth your time more you know kind of exploring that kind of genre here and there but yeah check out the trailer
2: there's a lot of evil out there
0: Worst kind of evil is evil that it knows it's evil. Okay, guys. I think I'm like on the worst streak right here. Like, I didn't love any of these movies so far. Some I respected, and this one is no different. But I don't even kind of respect this one. This is Headless Eyes. This is a Code Red release. This is a, I believe it's 70s. What year was this made? I'm looking. 71. That's pretty early for this movie. Let's be honest. Uh, that, might, that makes me think a little bit more of it. But okay, Headless Eyes. This is uh, actually made by Jason Bateman's father or I think Jason Bateman's father directed this movie, so that's a noted interest. The cast in here is relatively unknown, people. But this is a pretty uh, crumb-bum, grindhouse slasher movie. And it's it's before the big slasher movie, so I guess it's a proto-slasher movie, or I guess a character study is more like it. Uh, it definitely feels in the vein of like a Herschel Gordon Lewis kind of movie. But uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. And I was talking to uh, my friend, and he said he really liked this one because it's, um you know, unintentionally trippy. And it is very unintentionally trippy. In the beginning of the movie, the, character, the movie's about this artist who's trying to steal money from this woman to pay his rent, and he gets his eye jabbed out. And then it he loses his eyeball, and it goes into like a five minute seg, seg uh, segment where he's like my eye, my eye, and it keeps replaying that over and over again. And I'm like, now am I supposed to understand like you just didn't have any sound recorded for that, so he kept doing my eye, my eye, or is that like supposed to be some sort of psychedelic weird trip? Like that's that's what I think he's talking about, that kind of stuff. And it has a bunch of that kind of stuff in here. But regardless, the guy goes completely nuts, and he starts to gouge out women's eyes and make weird sculptures of them. You know, um, I imagine that. You know, I originally I never saw Bucket of Blood, which is terrible. I know don't kill me, but I imagine that something like that, maybe possibly, um, they riffed on that or color me blood red by Hershey Gordon Lewis. That kind of artist goes crazy and kind of starts hacking and slashing people and putting them into his art projects. We have that going on here. Uh, it's, it's around uh, New York City, I believe. It's gritty. It's gross looking. Um, there's a really cool scene where um, they always say the killer returns to the scene of his crime where he's standing and the newscasters are around and he's in the background watching them bring out a body. I thought that was probably the nicest touch in the movie, but I do think the movie Nostril Picker does it better. I know you guys like Nostril Picker, a.k.a. The Changer. I think that film does it well and they do a nice one here. But, uh, yeah, this one, it's pretty repetitive, pretty boring. The performances are pretty shoddy. I mean, it's the kind of special effects where it's just actual real pig guts and stuff like guts and nasty stuff like that. Um, uh, Of course, it has that storyline where this uh, young, attractive artist is like, I don't know why, but I'm attracted to you. I want to learn art from you. What is that up with that storyline where it's like young, attractive artist wants to be around middle-aged weirdo, psychopath, obviously crazy, going to kill you? thing. It was like a big thing in the 70s, and it, probably even up to now, but it's always that storyline, and I just roll my eyes every time. Like, it happens all the time. It happens in that movie, The Damned, where it's like, oh, here's a middle-aged guy. Is this like some middle-aged guy writing these fantasies? Like, I don't want anything to do with this hot young girl, but she's all over me, and I, I got to Oh, my God. Like, I just imagine some guy doing that and writing that. Or is it just the fact that they're like, we need an actress in here, or we need to force a love interest in here, or we need an actress in this movie. Might as well make her hot and young, and that's what we'll get asses in seats. Probably a little bit of all that, but it just makes me laugh every time. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's not going to happen. But she wants to learn art from him. And uh, the ending, I actually kind of liked the ending, what happens to the killer and everything like that. I thought that was a little bit of a nice touch. But it's Sherlock. It's pure Sherlock. It's not particularly good. It's um, If you want to see a, a proto-slasher, you know, I guess character study of a weird guy gouging out eyeballs in gritty New York City, it's not that good. It sounds good, right? Saying all that, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm in. You're not in. I'm not in. I'm not watching this again. <laughs>
2: headless eyes. Now here's a guy with an unusual hobby. He collects eyes and doesn't care where he has to go to get them. You won't want to close your eyes for a second while you're watching this screamer.
0: Okay, the next one I watched on Amazon Prime, this is going to be a quickie. This is going this is Star Hunter. Yes, made in the early 90s, 92. And this had a cover. It always looked like Sherrard for Masters of the Universe on the cover. And I was like, oh, man, what is that? I got to see that. Did they, like, get leftover stuff from Masters Universe and just decide to make a movie? Um, Note: this is directed by Fred Olin Ray and Cole S. McKay. It's a joint venture. Cole S. McKay, you guys know Fred Olin Ray. You know, independent, low-budget director stuff, tons of movies. Cole S. McKay was a stuntman. And he's in stuff like Hologram Man, Ice Cream Man, Best of the Best. Three. If you see uh, Ghoulies Four, if you see Cole S. McKay, you know he's getting shot or beat up because he's a stuntman. But he also is kind of one of these Kane Hodder types where he can act too. So he's in the movies a little bit better. And I like him. And uh, he directed this. There's some decent stunts in here. Right when I saw his name, I was like, whoa, cool. And I was like, oh, there's going to be some stunts. So there's people getting shot. There's people falling through things. There's some fire. This is a dirt cheap uh, predator ripoff for sure. Uh, it does have Stella Stevens in it and um, uh, Rowdy McDowell, so that's nice. And it also has, jeez, I can't think of this. It has, um, oh wow, why am I forgetting? Zach Ward from uh, Christmas Story. And it has somebody else of note that I can't think. Um The young guy from uh, Showdown is in this movie. He also played one of the Ninja Turtles in the suits. He's a martial artist. So yeah, basically what we have here is some football players who are way too old to be football players, kind of the rejects of the team. And they're on a bus trip. They have to go in the overload bus they end up getting stopped in the city and kind of the hood area, and there's this weird alien group, there's like a, a their tag team where Roddy McDowell is kind of the one who sets up and helps them from behind the scenes, and this robotic kind of a Sherard cheap rip-off thing that, you know, kills and ha- shoots everything like that, but they use like a, they, uh, you know, United States, or the America or the world's technology at they're on it looks like that at least, so we have that going on, they get trapped and they start to get picked off, it takes, it's a head-hunting uh, alien, so you know, it's definitely precious. But then at the same time, we have the I Come in Peace Critter storyline, where we have another alien who comes from more of the hidden, actually, because this thing jumps in bodies. So we have another alien who's trying to save the day, and he jumps in one of the characters' bodies. So we have all these little you know, sci-fi tropes and things like that in this movie. And pretty much after that, we just are watching these people try to survive from the... Um weird kind of space alien. Uh, Roddy McDowell, I love Roddy McDowell, but usually um, he's not one of the actors, I would say, after watching this, that never turns into bad performance. This is not a good performance for him. Stella Stevens seems to deliver her best, actually, and she's probably one of the more likable characters in the movie. Um, it's just uh, pretty pretty silly. Like I put it on and I was like, I don't know why I'm watching this. I don't know why I'm going to finish this. But I didn't hate it. Actually, by the end of it, it was okay. It was okay and entertaining. You know, the heads get chopped off. There's some people getting set on fire. Uh, There's some decent stunts. There's some stupid things where the kids get away, and then they come back, and then the cops follow them, like, uh, just to pad the the kill count and stuff like that. And, you know, the way they – the monster, they don't think about how to kill it and stuff like that. But it's okay. There's some uh, obvious minimum coverage, like the monster will get shot – and, and the same, and then they'll cut back into something else, and then they'll show the same shot of the monster getting shot. And you're like, I get it. And you didn't have much coverage. I'm not gonna really fault the movie 100% for something like that. Um, it's not great. It's a cheapy little B movie that you could do worse. You saw it on the Sci Fi Channel when you were 10. You'd be happy with it. And that's kind of where it sits. You know, Star Hunter.
2: A prisoner colony in a remote outpost of the galaxy. Escape was supposed to be impossible. But now the ultimate fugitive is heading to Earth to challenge his skills. And for the streets of Los Angeles, the impossible has become a reality. Star Hunter. When a group of unsuspecting students take a wrong turn. Are
3: you sure we're the right way?
2: They come face to face with a vicious hunter in search of its most elusive prey.
3: I'm not leaving anybody alone in this neighborhood.
2: An enemy disguised as a friend. Hello? Locked inside an invisible barrier, they become unwilling participants in a deadly game of relentless pursuit. If we can't run, we're gonna have to fight. Driven by fear, Their only hope is a mysterious force they can neither see nor understand. The hunt is on. Pure instinct. I don't get it. How can he hunt? He's blind. Raw
1: force.
2: Unstoppable defensive. It's survival of the fittest in a battle against the unknown. Starring Roddy McDowell and Stella Stevens. Prepare for the coming. Star Hunter.
0: Okay, this next one is a Patreon pick from Brandon Salkill, and this is All Is Lost by uh, starring Robert Redford. I can't think of the director's name. I've actually not seen any of his other pictures. I do know that. This came out, I think, in 2016, and pretty much it only stars Robert Redford. Robert Redford, you know, classic, uh, you know, movie star. Movie star Robert Redford. So... What we have here is uh Robert Redford. this is gonna be a short review as well. Robert Redford, he's on this uh his boat and uh this is pretty much Murphy's Law. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And it's a survival story, you know. I had never saw Castaway, but I imagine that this would be something I'd prefer more of Castaway because Robert Redford turns in a almost silent performance. He is sleeping and he crashes into kind of like uh one of these big uh you know storage containers that fell off one of these massive boats. And his boat hits it. He gets a hole in it. And then we have to, we proceed to watch him fix everything. The radio's out. And he goes from the boat to a life raft to basically nothing. And it just goes on and on. And you're just really hoping that he survives. What makes this movie really cool is the camera work. The camera goes everywhere. It jumps under the water. It sometimes will be half above and half below. This movie is like if somebody's like, hey, I got a really good commercial grade underwater camera. You want to make a movie on a boat? Do I? And then they proceed to just make a, really something that is uh, really showing it off, and it, I like that. It's entertaining. It looks beautiful. They'll go way up into the air and show from a, from the aerial views from above of how it looks, and they'll go under the water and show things like that. And it's terrifying in a lot of ways. And uh, really great performance by Robert Redford. The man was like 77 when he made this. Tough as nails, doing a lot of his own stunts. It looks like a lot of physical things going in the water, getting out of the water, bump in his head so it was like everything that could possibly go wrong when you're on a boat isolated kind of happens in here and until it gets to really really desperate like i said the camera work is really what makes this movie really cool and unique, and the performance by Robert Redford. So we have two things going on here, a survival movie with minimal dialogue uh, with one of the greatest American actors ever, arguably some people would say, um, one of the last living movie stars for sure in this movie, uh, doing giving it his all, and uh, and doing lots of crazy stunts and things like water. Going, and like I said, it, it's a really nice-looking movie. It's a beautiful-looking movie. That's called All is Lost. It is on Amazon Prime.
2: SOS call, over. This is the Virginia gene with an SOS call, over.
0: Okay, the next one is another Patreon pick from Chris Rivers. Man still has not let me down by giving me good titles. And this is The Hustler with Paul Newman, Jackie Gleason, George C. Scott, and Piper Laurie. And some other familiar faces too, you know, some character actors in here. So The Hustler, this is the uh, made in 61. This is the, I guess, a prequel. This is the first movie in The the Color of Money that Martin Scorsese did, which I reviewed uh, a while back. So The Hustler. I had never actually seen this one. I had heard about it for years. And let me say this. I hadn't seen that many Paul Newman uh, sh- movies before I started doing this whole show thing, but every Paul Newman movie I've seen, he's been so good in this one. And this is, again, no exception. He's a, a, a leading man that somehow sucks me in, and he's always intriguing and entertaining. Uh, and what can I say about George C. Scott? George C. Scott is one of the, I haven't seen all his movies, of course, but everything I've seen him in, he's been tremendous. From Dr. Strangelove, which is one of the greatest comedic performances, to this, where he's just such a great character, to uh, the Changeling. Everything he's in, he's just top-notch. Even Firestarter, for sake, you know? I mean, he's always great. And this one is a great performance, the way he delivers his dialogue, the way he, way, way he carries himself, the way his character's introduced and becomes more intertwined with Piper Laurie and Paul Newman's uh, life. Piper Laurie is an actress that I had only seen in stuff like Carrie and Ruby. So she's always been that I'm crazy kind of thing going on past my prime. Seeing her in this, she's gorgeous. And she gives a really complicated um, and endearing performance. Love seeing that. Jackie Gleason, obviously from television. Again, a lot of good screen presence in here. But the hustler falls. Paul Newman. He is a pool hustler. And like The Color of Money, he was in Color of Money, he's the wise old man. And this one, he is the young uh, whippersnapper kind of punk kid that doesn't know how the things work and has got an ego like Tom Cruise did. So it's nice to see these in together, see both of them, how you see Paul Newman's changed throughout the movie. So... Okay, Paul Newman comes in he has, you know, as a manager, and he's making a little bit of money here and there, and he ends up playing uh, Minnesota Fats, who is Jackie Gleason in this game. And uh, you learn a lot about Paul Newman in that. that it's, it's not always if you're the best, it's just how how much money you kind of get at the end of the game and if you beat yourself. And that's one thing is he might be the best pool player ever, but he's not the best pool player ever, if that makes any sense, if you've ever seen this movie. that That's that kind of thing going on. And he loses to Minnesota Fats, Fats, and he becomes kind of embarrassed, and he ends up staying around that area. And he's he wants a rematch, of course. He meets Piper Laurie, who's this troubled kind of alcoholic writer, college college student writer, and uh, they start to have this weird kind of relationship that seems really kind of sad because they're both damaged people, and that's where they kind of meet. But uh, things change when Paul Newman gets involved with georgie Scott, who is really kind of an awful human being in this movie, but also he gives a great performance, and it starts this weird triangle between the three of them without spoiling too much. But of course, it's a drama, tragedy strikes, uh, great performances, great ending, uh, great character actors pop up in here, of course. Uh, geez, who else is in this movie? Uh, G- George, uh, Jim C. Felt from Love, Love, a Cuckoo's Nest has a tiny little role, and I was like... I would not forget that voice or that little that guy anywhere, and I knew it was seat uh, felt from Uncle Cuckoo's Nest right away when he talked. It also has the mayor from Jaws in here playing this weird Southern gentleman. Uh, love that, but regardless, um, it's kind of like what the price you pay to win is in this movie, and you learn a lot. You know, you may be rich in your pocket, but you're not rich anywhere else. You know, what do you sacrifice to get? To get these, you know, gains or goals accomplished. And, and there's a lot of stuff like that. And and I love how it ends because it, it leads right into The Color of Money years later. Paul Newman, great performance. Everybody in this movie's top notch. Uh, this director died six years later. So I never saw anything else he did. I no imagine he did a bunch of good movies. I, I looked at him, I hadn't seen anything. And uh, he died like... Fairly young, uh, six years after this movie was made, but I'd highly recommend checking this out. Uh, it's in black and white; it looks great. What I really noticed about the movie too is instead of like music every second, a lot of it's silent, especially during the pool matches. It builds tension; it intrigues you. Like you're actually there; like you're really in the. The stakes are high; you're invested. You really got to see what's going to happen next and how they like carry themselves, how they play, and everything like that. And that, there's a great scene where Paul Newman learns a valuable lesson that he can't just, you know, he could have easily uh, got the money and walked out with no harm but he has to be a show off so he's got that you know and there's just lots of great things here and it 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 goes directly into color of money and i think they even use some of the same locations in color of money but uh top-notch classic movie but anybody who's seen it knows that so yeah the hustler
1: Just step out in the alley, is that it?
2: Big John, do you think this boy is a hustler? (laughs) Sausage, rack him up.
1: Troubles, and I think maybe you've got troubles. Maybe it'd be better if we just leave each other alone. I got my things over at the hotel. I'll bring them over later. Come here. I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, what do you want to know? And why?
2: You're hearing a rain check, and I know it. You're hanging on by your nails. Let that glory whistle ring out loud and clear for Eddie, and you're a wreck on a railroad track. You're a horse that finished last. Now, don't make trouble, Miss Ladybug. Live and let live while you can.
1: You tell your boys they better kill me, Bert. They better go all the way with me. Because if they just bust me up, put all those pieces back together again, and then so help me. So help me, God, Bert. I'm gonna come back here and I'm gonna kill you.
2: to pay the price we invite you to go through the mirror of life
0: Alright guys, I think it's week 15, maybe week 16 at Hammer Time. There we go. That was weak. That was real weak. But I guess uh, we got uh, a special one. This is the first time we've done a third part of a series and this is The Evil of Frankenstein. This movie's kind of noteworthy for a couple reasons. Uh, first, it's the second of uh, the Freddie Francis-directed Hammer films. It's the first time he would work with Peter Cushing. I guess he worked with Peter Cushing like eight more times. I was reading up a little bit about it. And it's the first time that Hammer, I don't know if it continues or not, had the ability to use the likeness of Frankenstein's monster because they were. this was a universal picture. So instead of like the charred up nasty flesh that you'll see in like the first two, the monsters you actually see the big, kind of square head Frankenstein's monster we're all used to. So, uh, do you want to take this
3: one of the plot, or you want
0: me to try to tackle it?
3: Well, it's not exactly a sequel.
0: It, it is. It's a direct continuation of Part 2.
3: Is it really? Yes, is it, it th- opens th- up, know, but it's...
0: it's not a direct continuation of Part 1.
3: No, but, and that's why I get so confused. Because <laughs> it, it's like, yeah, because he still has his protege. Hans, from Hans, Part 2. from Part 2. It's not quite clear that Frankenstein's in a new body, how he ends in part two. Okay, the end of part two has Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein being in a new body trying to escape. He, uh,
0: basically, his body was on, his brain is put into the new body. So he escapes with his helper, Hans, who supposedly put that new brain in the body. Um, it opens up where Hans and Dr. Frankenstein are going around and they decide to go back to the old village where he did the original experiment 10 years ago. And the way they set this up, I assumed that it was an experiment before the original experiment, which didn't make much sense. Right. Or an experiment after the first experiment, but that didn't make sense either. So uh, basically what they do here is this third film has a flashback to the first movie, but they changed the history of the first movie and reshot those scenes without Christopher Lee... For- that Frankenstein. It's now this boxed head Frankenstein, as if they're trying right. to erase
3: the first curse of Frankenstein. You know, he doesn't mention his uh, his tutor or his uh, the girl he the loved. girl the girl he loved. It, it's it's almost, just yeah. It, 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 it's, it's very weird. And it, it they seem to make
0: Peter Cushing almost more likable than he was in the first yes. two. I know he's supposed to be the villain type, but in this one, he's like, why won't they leave me alone? As if he's never really done anything wrong in the first place, except become, you know, do grave, gross kind of experiments. But that's not the case. In Curse of Frankenstein, he became a monster, and he continued his fucking sadism and shit. Exactly. So this one, they try to erase it or something, like they're going to reboot, but it's not a reboot or anything like Mm -hmm. that. It's a sequel, but it doesn't, it ignores the first movie, but continues to the second movie. So it's really weird and doesn't make much sense, to be honest. And that, that's kind of a problem. This one looks really great, though. Yeah, um, it does look he, really good. They did a lot of more of the iconic in, imagery because the Frankenstein series from Universal, they're like, we'll do the lads like how we did because they're like, it's free mm-hmm. reign. Um, Hans is a different actor. Hans is a different actor. Um, um, and the Frankenstein monster himself is... I have a theory
3: do you have a theory?
0: I think that um, the mummy from Curse of the Mummy's Tomb kind of just walked off, and they're like, cut these bandages off me, and they took them off, and they're like, hey, we got our Frankenstein monster, because this is a dumpy. Yeah,
3: it's He's... like they, took, they cut the bandages off, and then they just formed it into like a paper mache helmet with goggles. <laughs> I with mean, like, things.
0: this looks like something you'd imagine in like a really, like, a low budget, like, I know it's probably low budget, but like, like a low budget, like... Like a or high school Hersher, play, Hersher Gordon Lewis, Al Adamson, low budget, like I, that kind of stuff. High school play, I feel. So, like, I, I mean, I, I, he's probably not that bad, but he was a professional wrestler. With the Frankenstein? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's the kind of performance, kind of deal. But he's not. He's he's a poor Frankenstein, I think. A he, monster. he just looks. Poor. He looks poor. Yeah. Uh, so, essentially, this is a really weird one. This The whole plot of this sounds like it comes out of a Marvel comic book or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, the Frankenstein monster, they find the original monster that he worked on. He's frozen in the ice, which I love to see. That kind yeah. of reminds me of, you know, uh, House of Dracula, is it, where they find the original Frankenstein monster frozen in the ice in the Universal movies, after he fought the Wolfman. They find him frozen in ice, um, which I think happens to Dracula at one point, too. I think he falls through the ice in one of these movies. I don't... And all, Captain like, America. Yeah, lots of people get yeah. frozen in ice, but, um... <laughs> So they unthaw him, and he has head injuries, like, as if the original movie, like, they shot yeah. him in the head, like that, too. So, like, does this take place after the first time they killed the monster, and then they just ignore the rest? Like, it feels like it might, right? Like, in the original Curse of they killed the monster twice. Does this take place after the first time they kill him? It sure seems like it. No, it can't. I can't, but it seems like it. You see what I'm saying? It could. But that's what I mean, because they say he was shot in the head. Because they all shoot him like that in the uh, original *Crystal Frankenstein. So, they find him frozen. He takes him out. He can't get him to revive. And meanwhile, you know, he's in this old hometown of his. And he realizes his, like, castle's been, you know, raped and pillaged. And all the Mm -hmm. people, the police chief and the burgermeister, they've stolen all his things. So, he's kind of angry. And he bumps into this hypnotist. And he has a great idea that I can use this hypnotist, hypnotist, uh, tongue twister, to bring the monster back to life. But... The monster will only listen to Zoltan. That's his name.
3: Yes. So that's the plot of the movie, and of course, revenge is on his mind and because right. he's a you know a creepy circus folk. Yeah, you know he he wants money, it's a little bit of revenge, but mostly and yeah. Then so that's pretty much the plot of the movie and how it unfolds. There's a deaf mute girl in this too. Yeah, as well that
0: she. Played somewhat of a part, but not a big enough part. She was good in it, I thought.
3: Yeah, her. I mean, she she was acting fine. Um, she she did her part well. She has no significance to the plot, really. She uh, finds like oh, when they're when Frankenstein and, and Hans are hiding in the mountains, like she takes them to their cave, and that's where they, they find the, the monster, she in, that's where Cause she find saves the them because she's an outcast too. Yeah, and she has a c-
0: connection with the monster because they're both kind of outcasts.
3: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's
0: kind of nice to see. And uh, Frankenstein becomes an alcoholic, which is very funny. Yeah. He becomes a drunk.
3: hmm And the
0: way he dies is hilarious. It's just the problem is, again, like with the mummy, they did they cl- covered up too much of his face, so he doesn't have any facial expressions. Yeah. And yeah. the monster needs facial expressions.
3: I Yeah, I, I agree. I, I liked the whole plot with, like, you know, the chief of police and, and the burgermeister. Yeah. Um, there are some really good, like, plot elements in this, but ultimately it just kind of, like, fizzles out and kind of how. well the second frankenstein well the ending of the second one was great it didn't yeah. fizzle out it just the second, took a while to get the, the middle was just yeah. very this well, one eh, i don't know where i goes. think it's just the best looking one it is the best looking one maybe besides one one look really good too but
0: i mean and it, it's freddie francis is a cameraman so that he obviously has a nice eye mm-hmm. and terrence fisher was originally supposed to direct this but he had got a car accident i just read I I brushed up a little bit. Yeah, so there's an alternate version of this movie, a TV version that has longer scenes that have... None of the characters have outcomes in that, they said. Really? Yeah, so I didn't know what the point... That was just because they played on TV, even though it wasn't that gory. It's not that violent of a movie. I think the Burgermeister was killed kind of violently, but hey, it is what it is. Overall, I think it's okay. I think it's a little above average, maybe like three out of five or something along those lines.
3: Yeah, I'd maybe give it just to skip above whatever I gave the second one. Yeah? Yeah. If I gave the second one a 2 out of 5, because I was being a prick that day, I'd say this might be 2.5 out of 5, 3 out of 5. Okay,
0: this one is in both books. I'm going to read Tear on Tape by James Neal, his review. I didn't look at it, so I have no clue what it's like. (coughs) This is out of 4 stars, I believe. And uh, James Neal gives us 2.5, 64. okay. Okay, entry in Hammer's Frankenstein series with Cushing in good form as the Baron returning to his ruined chateau and reviving his frozen monster. Australian wrestler Kingston in sloppy uh, Karloftian makeup by Roy Ashton, who falls under the spell of a greedy sideshow hypnotist, Woodthrope. MCA had the good sense to release the original theatrical print of this film rather than the needlessly padded TV version, making this a must for Hammer Files.
3: Ooh. Ah. Really Hammer fun a must I don't know about a must. I am going to read Creature Features, the science fiction fantasy and horror movie guide by John Stanley, but John Stanley. I already did read this before we started filming, and I think I'm more in tune with this bloke. What's this movie called Evil Frankenstein? I thought you read it all right nineteen sixty four two stars so out four. of five out of five, so we're we're close. Hammer's third entry in its Frankenstein series, produced by Anthony Hines, is one of its least efforts, providing only laboratory-worn results. Director Freddie Francis and writer John Elder needed a good, solid boat of electricity to the aspirations. Peter Cushing is back as the Baron, with a yen for resurrecting the dead, and Kiwi Kingston as the monster, lumbers in caves and laboratories under Francis' own lumbering direction. The monster, preserved in the glacier, doesn't get moving until late in the proceedings. A new prologue was added for the US TV with a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. I'd say yeah. Just I—I I thought it was okay. It I was enjoyed okay. it.
0: I—I I don't know. I, I watching all these together would be really weird to see the differences and changes and studios and everything. Like watching,
3: I think watching yeah. all the Breaking signs back to back would be weird. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So I guess next week is the Gorgon. Finally. Finally, that's. I'm excited. I know nothing about it. Will not know anything about it. Oh, I won't even watch the movie. I've just been hyped myself up. Oh, like, it's I can't terrible! Watch it. it might be terrible. I mean, it's a Gorgon. It's going to be terrible. I don't know about that. Not I like Gorgon movie. We already talked about this before.
0: But all right, um, yes. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Check out the trailer of the Evil of Frankenstein.
2: You are interrupting my work. Your work. The work of the devil. (laughs) Hands, please, Father.
1: No! The evil of Frankenstein. The evil of a man who created a monster by crude surgery and harnessed the tempestuous forces of nature to give it life. The evil of Frankenstein unleashed a monster that terrorized a whole community. Peter Cushing as the Baron and Peter Woodthorpe as the ruthless Professor Zoltan, who fought the Baron for control of the monster. Oh, he'll understand you all right. He just won't obey you, that's all. Duncan Lamont as the chief of police, Katie Wilde and Sandorales as two young people caught up in the evil of Frankenstein.
0: back and kill him okay we're gonna go into the questions uh nick mua he wants to know how far does a character have to go before they become irredeemable to you i realize morally gray's hip these days but still ooh, uh, i mean there's lots of characters that are completely morally irredeemable, but they are still intriguing to watch. So, um, I remember one character that lost me. Um, I still was intrigued in the movie at the time, but that character completely lost me, and that would be um, uh, Robert De Niro in Once Upon a Time in America. When he uh, rapes the girl in the bank, I was just like, wow. I think that just crossed the line for me giving a crap if this guy dies or not. So that's definitely one. Um, violent rape would probably be the one right there. That That's when a character goes a little too far, I think. Uh, you're a Toledo, Ohio native, correct? Yes. What are some of the most common or uncommon misconceptions about Ohio depicted in or perpetrated by films? Aren't Heathers and Nightmare on Elm Street set in Ohio? Um, I'm asking this because film critic who's born L.A. born and bred felt that David Mitchell's *Under the Silver Lake* depicted his city as a hipster shithole in a very swarmy way, obviously made by non-L.A. native. His Ohio received similar cinematic treatment. Yes, Gummo. <laughs> I remember watching Gummo. and being Like, oh, this takes place in Ohio, and a tornado tore through this small Ohio town. I mean, yes. There's probably some people in Ohio like that, but I don't think it's accurate, and I don't think that... uh, I don't know if um, Harmony Kareem was from Ohio, but I doubt it. I did notice that director, I think, who did Under the Silver Lake also did it, follows, if I'm not mistaken, and um, his portrayal of the Midwest, I believe that movie took place in the Midwest, it's hard to determine, um, but... I knew he wasn't from the Midwest. It sure didn't feel like he was from one. I I couldn't tell timelines exactly, but at one point in the movie, um, there's like Leafs. And then like after that, there's people in swimming pools or like swimming. And it's like, if it's that cold, no one swims in Detroit because it takes place in Detroit. Yeah, no one's swimming at that time. I don't know if I mixed the timelines or they mixed the timelines or that was supposed to happen way previous or something like that. But uh, the girl in the beginning with the Leafs and I was just like, I don't know what's going on with the time here and the, the weather in that movie. In fact, I don't. That movie's a little vague on what what decade it takes place in, and any season or anything like that. Please describe your best movie-going experience. I don't really know. You know, I go and I watch the movie, and uh, I only really note if anything weird happens. But I really love seeing Once Spot of Time in Hollywood. That one really affected me. I remember seeing how how happy I was after that, and how great I felt after seeing that movie. So I'll go with that one. And then we have some new answers to the question where I asked. Um, your, it was um, your favorite movie from your most hated director and your least favorite movie from your favorite director. So we have Jonathan Wilhelm. He says, hated director Michael Bay. Favorite movie by him, The Rock. Love The Rock. Uh, favorite director, John Carpenter, least favorite by him. He said children of the damned. He means village of the damned, but that's okay. Nick Mua, favorite movie by least favorite director, Twister. I did, never did enjoy uh, John D. Bontes. I don't know if this director film, but the disaster film was well made. Great effects in the actors Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, Philip Seymour Hoffman make the dialogue work. I think this is the best film, he, and he will always be remembered for it. Best film by him. Least favorite movie by director I adore. Tim Burton's films are such a huge part of my childhood. His work amazed me, comforted, and excited me. Time and time again, still Alice Through the Looking Glass is the dud. It's flashy, loud, great effects, but has no heart. It feels like a cash grab, and this saddens me, especially because it was one of the last performances of the mighty Alan Rickman, one of the world's finest actors. Sigh, just sigh. Matthew Hudson. He didn't want me to read this whole thing, so maybe I'll paraphrase a bit. As a kid, my favorite director was Spielberg. Least favorite at the time was probably Lost World. Was the movie? That's the movie that changed my opinion on him, to be honest. I think it's fun. Maybe not Spielberg caliber, but it's fun. Um, In um, an insufferable artist college age, Kubrick was my favorite. My least favorite had to be Eyes Wide Shut. I've since turned around on the film. These days, it's hard to say who my favorite director is. There's nobody current that I really follow. Either somebody whose films I have found I just like to revisit at this age. Somebody like Joe Dante or just somebody who I don't feel made a bad film like Sergio Leone. I don't know. Tough to say. But if I picked either of them, I'd have to say Gremlins 2 or Fistful of Dollars. Not because I dislike them, but because to me, they are the ones I visit the least. To be fair, I haven't seen a new Dante film since 1993. And it's entirely possible I dislike one of his newer films, most of which I've never heard of. More than Gremlins, more than Gremlins 2. In fact, I'd bet on it. Because I love Gremlins to, just not as much as Gremlins 1, Explorers, Inner Space, The Burbs, or Matinee. Least favorite director? My favorite movie by them? Question mark. I got two answers. Tim Burton and Ed Wood? Or Joel Schumacher and the Lost Boys? I don't really hate either as they've both made lots of movies I've liked, but have also made a few I really, really didn't like, so they both deserve to be mentioned. That was a good question I really thought about. Again, you don't have to read this all out loud. Too late. Okay, uh, Dead Flintstone. I love David Lynch movies, but I think Dune was not a great film. It has... Some good elements. I've grown to hate Wes Anderson over the years with his quirky bullshit, but I really like Rushmore. You know, I haven't seen that many Wes Anderson movies. Maybe none. That's weird. I know it's like weird that I don't watch a lot of these films that I should, but it just happens. Biz Cut Bub Horror Reviews. And I got to say, this hurt my soul reading this. This honestly made me question if I should have answered this question or not. (laughs) Uh, Worst movie by favorite director? Andy Milliken, Blood, Thirsty Butchers, Ted V. Michaels, Girl with the Golden Boots. Jodorowsky, Tusk, Jaron Carpenter's Village of the Damned. Love Jodorowsky and Carpenter. I, I'm not too familiar with those two other directors, but I have some of their movies. Oh, I accidentally... Um, no, that wasn't his. Okay, my bad. Maybe it was. Maybe I mixed up some of these. Yeah, his his best movie from least favorite director, he put Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. How do you dislike Peckinpah? Uh, John Dole's As Above, So Below, and Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Oh man, are you like not those guys? But okay, okay, sorry. I shouldn't do that. And then we have JKMT. Uh least favorite film from a filmmaker I love to be uh I, I love would be Interstellar from Christopher Nolan. I just think you limit your reach with something so niche in dealing with concepts and ideas that are likely to go over people's heads. Favorite film from a director I don't care uh for would be Heart of America by Ule Bull. Probably one of the only two halfway decent films he made. Derek Bourgeois, Rampage by Ule Bull and The Sweet House of Horrors by Lucio Falci. So doesn't like that Fulci one, loves that Ule Bull one. Brandon Salkill of Vent Horizon by Paul Anderson. That's a good one, because that Paul Vent Horizon's pretty good, and I can see why somebody not like his other movies. And then Village of the Dam by John Carpenter. Ooh man. Village of the Dam's getting a lot of hate. I don't even hate it. I don't even you know what I mean? It's funny. It's like hey, it is what it is. It's not great, but hey, it's fine. Seb Godin, Dogville, Lars von Trier, and uh, Haruku the Goblin by Sheena um uh, Tusa Comato, sorry if I said that wrong, Mike Mitchell, Seed by Ula Bull, Cop Out by Kevin Smith, Kaiser Sosa, I don't know who would be my least favorite director, but Dominic Senna, I believe that's how his name is said, is one of them. His best film is California. One of my favorites is Scorsese, and his worst is The Color of Money for me. I like that one. Jason Lindbergh, Reservoir Dogs by Tarantino. Okay. At least you like Reservoir Dogs, right? And Danger Diabolique Di- by Mario Bava. Alex Powers, Nymphomaniac by Lars von Trier, least favorite director. And Altered States by Ken Russell, favorite director. Robert Barry Franco's favorite film by least favorite director, Dogma by Kevin Smith. Icarus Finn, uh, Religious. I don't know what that, religious? I don't know if that's a weird spelling. or I, I don't know the movie by Larry Charles. And Survival of the Dead by George Romero. That's a good one. That probably is Romero's weakest, I think. Dave Gibson, The Shining slash Kubrick. Michael Honeycutt. He didn't give both answers, so I'm not sure which is which on that one. Michael Honeycutt. Princess Diaries, Gary Marshall. And Lord of the Rings, Any by Peter Jackson. Matt Brown, Mortuary from Toby Hooper. For at least... um, for least favorite film. Oh, I missed part of his question. I don't see the other part of it. I'm sorry. He said, I can't remember what his one he liked is. So uh, Matt Brown, I'm sorry. I must have cut it off or something. But Mortuary from for least favorite film. and That's his favorite director, Toby Hooper. Sorry, I lost it. Something happened. It's just not there. Old answers. We had uh, underrated actors and directors for indie. Um, Jason Fetters, Lou Temple for actor, and William Grief for director. Those are They're indie, but they're old school, kind of. Sort of. Cody Rapp, director probably Sam uh, Salerno. He's one. He's out here snapping next and writing checks, but not too many people are giving his work the time of day. His newest short, Death by a Thousand Cuts, is legitimately really good stuff. And Bumpus Hounds, I think Trent Haga deserves more attention for his writing, Citizen Toxie, Dead Girl, Cheap Thrills, and his directing, Chop, 69 Kill and uh, Cheap Thrills is amazing. He has 60 acting credits as well, including playing Kill Joy in the Full Moon series. His films are great because they don't feel safe and they always contain disturbing elements. I think Chad Farron, Easter Bunny Kill Kill, The Ghouls is likewise an interesting and fearless writer, director, produced and acted in Haggis Chop. I'm also a fan of Ricky Bates, uh, junior, Suburban Gothic, Trash Fire. I look forward to new projects from all these guys. Ricky Bates, man, Excision and Suburban Gothic are the only two I saw. I need to check out those other two. But he is totally underrated. And I think that guy, I hear him on podcast. He's hilarious. He's great. But I really think that guy um, needs to be a huge. I would love to see him do more movies. Um, then we have question of the week. And this pertains to, I I reviewed tons of indie movies this week, and I wasn't like uh, super high on any of them, to be honest. In fact, the only movie I was really super high on was probably The Hustler. And of course, all is lost is good, but The Hustler. So I want to ask you guys, some movies you wanted to love so bad, but you just couldn't or didn't. So let me know. Some movies that you wanted to love, but you couldn't or didn't. You can tell me the reason if you'd like, but you don't have to. So I guess we're going to hop into the update. Okay, let's hop into this update. First is The horror Frankenstein. This is a Shout Factory release, Scream Factory release. This is a Hammer movie. This is like a remake of Curse of Frankenstein. But yeah, it's got Ralph Bates in it. So yeah, look forward to checking that one out. Never seen this one. The Dead Shall Rise Again. So, alright. And then we got Fear in the Night. Another Hammer movie, Joan Collins. It's got a nice cast in this one: Judy Geeson, uh, uh, Joan Collins, Ralph Bates, and Peter Cushing. I know all of them names, so yeah, cool. Definitely want to check this one out. Then we have the Pakitsi tapes, which I uh, got used. Definitely want to watch this one. Heard some weird things about this movie. Obviously, had you know some history where it wasn't released. Yep, definitely want to check that out. Then we have Walking Tall, which I got. This is the trilogy, the original movies. So, yeah, Joe, Don, Baker. Never seen these movies, believe it or not, but I got a good price on this. Couldn't pass it up. Wanted to see them. Then we have some regular blues. Not any big companies or anything. Uh, Deep Discount had a nice sale. True Grit. They would buy one, get one free on Paramount. Uh, True Grit's a freaking classic. Great cast. John Wayne, Rooster Cogburn. Come on. I haven't seen this since I was a kid. Always liked it. Then we have El Dorado uh, again, another John Wayne one. Robert Mitchum. Check this out. Is this one of like the three times they remade Rio Bravo. I think it is one of those. Is El Hondo the other one? Maybe this isn't the one. Rio Lobo. I don't know. I'm getting all these mixed up. But yeah. Then we have Clue the movie, classic movie, hilarious, great cast. Can't wait to rewatch this one. Seen this one dozens of times. Very clever. Very fun. Then we have The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, Morton Scorsese. I didn't watch this when it came out. I don't know why, but that's terrible. And after watching Leo and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was like, I got to, I got to watch this movie. And It's made by one of the greatest directors of all time, with one of the probably the best director, best actor right now. So yeah, got to check that out. Then we have the '90s, '98 version of Shaft. I bought the old Shaft's on Blu-ray. I remember watching this on television when it came out. I remember thinking it was pretty decent. I don't remember it very well, but hey, want to check it out, Shaft. And we have a uh, Log 17 with William Holden. I believe he won an Oscar for this movie. I'm sure it's great. It looks great. Can't wait to watch it. Auto Premager. Yeah. No, Billy Wilder direct this one or Auto Premager? I don't know. One of the two. They're both involved with it. But yeah. Can't wait to check this one out. And then last, but certainly not least, we have The Rock by Michael Bay. Um, I love this movie. Great cast. Um, There's a moment in here where Ed Harris and Michael Bean have this argument that I just always have loved.
2: Cannot give that order. It's just,
0: I don't know. Yeah, it is what it is, but I love it. Yeah, one of my favorite action movies. One of the last great action movies along with Con Air to me. That's how I feel. But yeah, great cast. And I guess we're going to go back to the video. All right, guys. Thank you very much for watching. And as always, you guys have a good one.